I can't believe Kurt Cobain never existed in your lifetime. That's fucking yeah, insane. My name is Hunter. Um, your name is Hugh. This is a podcast called Project A Plus. On this particular episode of this great show, we're we will be discussing a couple of movies. Uh, we're gonna start our show with a, a brief uh, dissection of Bong Joon Ho, acclaimed South Korean auteur's latest work, the Palm Dior winning. Parasite, uh, and then we will segue into our second uh, Halloween-themed um, mini project. Mini project, dark project A plus. Uh, and today we're going to talk about Kai Fujiwara's Organ, sort of an underground film about organs. Yep, and the people and the people that have them. And also, Brian Yesna's 1980 horror Nine. comedy... No, 1980. Car comedy... They Live Rip-Off Society. And then we'll have bonus segments, and uh, I'll have to think of something to talk about uh, in our last segment. Um, we'll just come back <laughs> on over. And uh, that's, that'll be the show. So um, that's our overture, so... Uh, Let's um, jump right into it. Uh, Hugh, I believe our the first segment of the night is called Armor of the Gods, and it is where we'll discuss our sartorial uh, choices for the day. What you wear on your body. Tell me about the armor of God. What you wearing on your body. I will start. Wow. Oh, shit. Here's my first question. Mm-hmm. Are you wearing something different than you did last week? I mean, that is a pertinent question. The answer is... Sort of. <gasps> so I'm wearing the same pants. The same t-shirt. Actually, I think the same pair of socks. Mm. <laughs> but I, I don't have a shirt on because it's quite warm today. As we'll get to on... <laughs> famous segment air diaries uh-huh so shall i describe it again or or should we refer listeners back to the archives uh let's describe it again because you always do that um, i'll describe it quickly yes yeah, so you always do that with your fucking meal which is always the same too so that's true that's true um so i'll start in uh, reverse order this time just to mix it up so the socks i'm wearing a are a pair of uh, bond socks the bonds logo is in red text uh, running sort of vertically across the top. And uh, they're mostly black, but they have purple and grey. 
or blue, I can't really tell in this light. I think it's grey. Purple and grey stripes. Maybe they're slightly different to the ones I wore last week, I can't remember, but they're very similar. Um, same design. Mm. Um, I'm also wearing a tan pair of pants. Oh. And a light blue t-shirt. And I'm going to give you a bonus item. No shit. I'm wearing a uh, blue with uh, vertical white, dark blue, and orange striped pair of boxer shorts mm. to uh, coin my loins. Interesting. Cloin? Is that a word? Coin? I don't think coin is a word. Cloin. Yeah, it is a word. Yeah, that's a word. Never mind. What? How do you spell it? Because you can say uncloined, can't you? What? Uncloined means naked, naked, right? <laughs> Does it? Doesn't it? I I've never heard this before. What is it? How do you how would you spell it? U N C L O I N E D. No, was it U N C L O I N E D? C L O E D. C L O I N E D. Oh, I N E D. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> What am I thinking of? Coin. Clad? Clad? I just think you've clad? Fuck you, I'm Shakespeare. I can make up my own words. You said that was such, such brio. Such, such confidence. Uncloined. Oh, it sounds right, doesn't it? No, it just sounds like nothing. <laughs> uh, I can't. I don't know if I can do the podcast anymore. So I was uh, reclining, uncloined in the sauna the other day. It's perfect. It sounds great. This is, this is how you hit on women without sounding like a creep. That's right. Uh, okay, so uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm cur- currently coined. <laughs> uh, in a t-shirt that has sort of a um, I don't know, it's got like a turtle and some grass mm. and a bird on it. I like it. I'm wearing a uh, red pair of pants uh, and a pair of socks that have um, um, purple and yellow triangles on them. Hmm. And I'm not going to get into my underwear situation. What? The reason that may come clear at some point, but not right now. Wow. So, that's it. Okay. Uh, so, you're freeballing it. No, I, I'm not freeballing it. So, uh, next on the, the, the program, we got um, Wheels on Meals. Meals on Wheels? Reels on Meals. Reels you you on say meals. it wrong every single week. <laughs> It's because it's a, it's a title that is easily confused with the original. But, you know, I did find another title that we could call this segment by. Maybe even more apt. Reels on Meals is perfect. No, because I always forget it. And it's always, it's got a great theme song already. I'm not doing another theme song for that. You could just, you could just copy-paste out the theme song with the, this other theme song, which is Jackie Chan film Uh, half a loaf of kung fu. So, hmm, it's okay. <laughs> Great. 
So anyway, that could be a segment specifically about our bread experiences. No, no, no. We'll, we'll add segments maybe later. But but we, we've already <laughs> we already added one segment on this program. We're already gonna add a next one. Uh, do a next one. Maybe maybe we can talk about it after that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, put great. a pin in it for the moment. Put it on the back burner. It is yeah. a good title. Pin it, pin it up your ass. Um. So anyway, uh, that 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 uh, um, reels on meals. Reels on meals on reels on meals on reels. Reels on meals on reels on meals on reels. Oh my god. Uh, what did you eat? What have you eaten so far on this great day? Uh, well, surprise, surprise, I had uh, two pieces of toast, mm. uh, but in contrast to last week, I went upscale and I purchased a loaf of delicious rye bread uh-huh. and a top of two slices of said loaf toasted. Mm-hmm. I spread some spread, as it's called, mm-hmm. and also some Marmite. And I consumed that along with coffee, although I will say that although the coffee itself, the beverage, the liquid, is exactly the same as always, right down to the type of roast mm. and the supplier, I bought a new coffee mug. It was $2.50. The reason I bought it is because it, it looks like a sort of cheesy diner mug. It's yellow, which is my favorite coffee mug color. Um, it's like my other coffee mug but it's more disposable, which is good for a shed house. Mm. I'm even going to buy more because there's a whole set of different colors with the same design. And the design is this. So you've got this bright orange uh, canvas, bright yellow orange canvas. And then we've got uh, the words delicious, fresh brewed coffee. And then at the bottom, have a cup, exclamation mark. This is not something like a uh, diner, diner cup at all. I mean, it's sort of, it, it, the shape of it is like a diner cup. But all every diner cup I've ever had in my entire life has just been a white coffee cup. Yeah, plain white, I know. I know. But it, it has, it sort of evokes a diner. It evokes Twin Peaks, actually, but still. I had to have it. Uh, where did you buy this particular um, piece of garbage? From one of those, uh, you know, like $2 shops down the street. There's a whole bunch of them right near me. Why did you go to one of these places? For the video I made for this podcast, ah. I went to buy some uh, face paint and rubber bands. You know what? I wish I had a video camera so I could contribute segments as well. Well, you have a phone which has a decent, which has a, a better camera than the one I used. I can tell you that much. I mean, what sort of phone do you think I have? I'm assuming it's some sort of iPhone made in the last five years. Uh, I actually don't know. Let me see. When did... Yeah, uh, four years. Okay, whatever. Close enough. The camera's probably okay. Uh, I just don't have anyone to shoot stuff with. Neither did I. I don't have any desire to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and you might quite rightly be wondering, what do you mean you didn't have anyone to shoot stuff with? Look at all those amazing shots you've pulled <laughs> off on your own. I mean, you did pull off some good approximations of the style of uh, inks, I'll say. Do you know how I did that? That was genius. How? <laughs> So I got a broom, right? <laughs> and you, so if you hold a broom up at an angle yeah, um, and the bristles are facing up, mm-hmm. it'll have like this sort of canted angle aiming at you. Mm-hmm. And I put a plastic bag over the bristle 
and then I taped, no, I used a rubber bands to affix my camera to that surface. So it was pointed down at me. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, stuffed the uh, end of the broom handle down my belt. Mm. So it had some uh, tension there. And then I had it between my legs and sort of uh, closed my thighs so it would sort of stay in place. So it couldn't go any further forward because of the belts keeping it there. And then I went back and forth and wandered around. Uh-huh. And uh, it, worked, it worked really well. It, it would work pretty much exactly as it does in the film, except for the limitation of not having a ring that can actually circle me in real time, like they did in Angst. Okay. Um, so, let's see. Woke up. Got out of bed. Dragged a comb across your head. Yeah, and then uh, I had some Greek yogurt with honey in it. Wait, right. didn't you have a cup on the way downstairs? No, I, I didn't. I didn't get downstairs. Okay. I live in a one or a, like four room apartment. So, sorry. Anyway, so I had a uh, some Greek yogurt uh, in which mm-hmm. I mixed some. Uh, how do you pronounce what's what's it? M- muesli is that it? Muesli. Muesli, yeah. Um, and I ate that with a cup of coffee on the side. Good stuff. Greek yogurt, really tasty. Mm-hmm. And then I had a delicious lunch. Um, I had some leftovers, which uh, included a baked potato. Wow. With sour cream. What is your baked uh, potato technique? I bake them in the oven. Okay. For um, 60 to 70 minutes at uh, 350. Mm-hmm. And then I eat them. Eat them with sour cream, sometimes with chives. Mm, nice. Yeah. Uh, so I had that. Uh, and additionally, I had some green beans, which were cooked, which were blanched and then um, dressed with a uh, lemon, uh, black pepper, and uh, yuzu hot sauce sort of uh, wow. dressing. Who's a fancy boy? <laughs> Wait, can I, can I stop you there? I'm it's not, funny I'm that not you... done yet. No, no, I know, but you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna proceed. But I'm gonna yeah. stop you there just to say that it's funny that you talked about baked potatoes, then you talked about blanching green beans. Because did you know that the ultimate baked potato technique, as uh, advocated by Cooks Illustrated, is to no, actually, never mind. I was gonna say blanch the potatoes, but that's not the right word. You brine the potatoes. So. This was a bad interruption, but it is still relevant to baking potatoes. So you actually brine the potatoes in a salt water solution, then put it in the oven. I'm not quite sure what the temperature they recommend is, but I think like like two thirds of the way through, you then take it out of the oven, then put oil on the potatoes, maybe salt, I'm not sure. No, I think the brine is probably enough for that and then turn them, and then put them back in. So it's a more complicated method, but it apparently achieves the best baked potato result. Proceed. I literally could not give less of a fuck. Well, luckily this podcast is not just for you. It's for all of the people out there listening and not listening. I think one of my friends uh, gave an episode a shot, so... That sounds uh, not very promising. He gave an episode a shot and was like, yeah, this is not for me. Yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> uh, but did you hear back? No, I did not give you comments. 
Oh, was it even worse? Yeah, no comment is probably the worst response. Yeah. Yeah, you agree? It's like, yeah, yeah, I had an episode. So, uh... No, 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 <laughs> I encouraged... I, mean, I didn't encourage him. I, t- I was telling him while I was watching um, something. I can't even remember. And then I was like, oh, I have this podcast. He was like, you have what now? And I was like, oh, a podcast. And then I sent an episode <laughs> of, uh, on a... Set it up, which has, I think, our funniest bit. Um, the work screen. Yeah. No, the um, bit where you sing the friend song over and over again. Ah, uh, yeah. Anyway, so... Um, and then uh, additionally to my green beans, I had a salad that I made last night, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, spinach, um, feta cheese, um, walnuts, uh, dried cranberries, and sliced jazz apples. Whoa. With the apple uh, cider vinegar. Interesting. Yep. Okay, wow. What, what are jazz apples? Uh, I don't know. It was just a, it was like the cheapest bulk apple thing that Trader Joe's had. So I bought okay. it from New Zealand, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I've like heard the term, but I've never actually associated it with any particular type of apple. So no, no. interesting. I for like dinner, the name though. For dinner. I'm going to have a jazz apple for dinner. I had some pizza, which I'll talk about later. Thank God, because I, I had no pizza in the preceding week. And I uh, also had another apple. And that was what I had for dinner. Was it another jazz apple? Yes. Before I ate dinner, I also had a Ben and Jerry's milkshake. Whoa. That's everything I've eaten today, I think. So, good stuff. All right, uh, now on to our new segment. That's a packed segment. Oh, uh, Air Diaries? Air Diaries. Tell me about the weather where you are. So, uh, what does the weather look like in, um, uh, what's, what's your neighborhood? My neighborhood is uh, St. Kilda East, just on the outskirts of uh, Balaclava. And in Melbourne, Australia. Technically outside Balaclava, but yes. And uh, what's the weather like there right now? Uh, it's warm, so my blinds are down. I can't actually tell you exactly what it looks like at the moment, but I can see that the sun is blaring through. And uh, I also stepped outside earlier to water the garden, and it was uh, quite warm. Yesterday it was like 30 degrees centigrade. Today is probably uh, something like that, if not less or more. I don't know. Mm. But it's quite warm. I'd recommend uh, no more than a, a T-shirt and uh, a light shirt, if that. Mm. How about you, sir? What's it like uh, across the lake? In, uh, Washington Heights, Manhattan, New York, New York. Mm. It, today it was overcast and very drizzly. Mm. A little chilly, but not... Uh, as bad as to require like a full coat. Right. Um, sounds so, nice. Yeah, so I'd say uh, nice, nice uh, rain slicker uh, umbrella probably. Yeah. That's what I would wear. So, there you go. What's it like right now? Uh, I don't know. Okay. It's it's dark outside. It's dark. Good. Okay. Uh, next our main feature, the much-acclaimed Parasite. I pause for the theme song. Why does it smell like the chauffeur? Has he been on the sofa? Roll it over, spread an odor like he owns the place. If I were him, I'd shower six or seven times an hour at full power. And I'd scour. 
All right, Hugh, what is a parasite, and why should I not or should see it? Uh, so it's about like this family, right? Uh-huh. Where? In South Korea. Uh-huh. Which part of South Korea? I don't know. <laughs> Seoul? Doesn't seem like you did much research on this film, Hugh. No, I haven't. I, I read an entire article about how the, the previous South Korean administration was censoring filmmakers by denying them government grants. So, fuck you. Well, you can, you can get into that, but I, today I am pretty much off book because uh, I went to bed at 5 a.m. Why? After managing to watch uh, Society and uh, Organ. <laughs> Last night. This is like the ideal time to watch those two films. Because of a certain uh, promo that I spent the last few days making. That you wasted your time. So I have I have barely any notes. I'm going to fucking improvise. And I have not... I, the, think I, I took, don't have the verbal facility to pull took, that off. So this is going to be a great episode. I took a note. A note on society. No wow. notes on either parasite nor organ. So... This is going to be our best episode yet. Project A+, off book. So, let's get into it. Parasite, somewhere in urban South Korea. Wait, I thought you were. I thought you found out the exact location. Uh, I didn't say on Wikipedia, so... Jesus um, Christ. Yeah, so there's this family, right? Okay. And what about them? They're, uh, they're from a, a lower social class. Hmm. Working class poor family. I would say they're not, they don't even qualify as working class. They're. Um, I was wondering what to say below working class. They're, out, they're outside the class system. They, you know, they're unemployed. They're well, un- no, they're, they're part of unemployed. the class system. Everyone's they're part outside of the, the class traditional. System. They're outside the traditional like um, uh, classifications. Let's say marginalized people. They they are working, but it's sort of sub working class because they're really grifting to get by. As we all, as we all are, eh, eh. Mm, in this economy, eh, eh, eh. Yes, yes. So we have this sub working class family, right? There's like a kid, who's a boy. There's another kid who's a girl. I mean, they're pretty old. They're like te- like teenagers. Uh, then there's a couple of parents. There's, yeah. a, there's a there's a guy from the host, played by a longtime Bong Joon Ho collaborator. Um, Looking up his name right now. Uh, da, 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 uh, Kang Ho Song. Mm-hmm. Who is in, who's been in, I think, all of his films besides Okia. Was he in Snowpiercer? Yes. Okay. I remember his role in Snowpiercer. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Um, yeah, you know what? Not bad. I, well, we'll get yeah, into that. Better, better than, uh, better than Okia. We'll get into it on our Snowpiercer episode. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, there's Project this... Bong Joon Ho Plus. So there's this family, right? There's this family, yeah. sub-working class family. Um, they're all scraping to get by, grifting, doing various yeah. things. Uh, yeah. Their main source of income seems to be like folding pizza boxes yes. or something. Yes. They live in a very poor neighborhood. Um, they, they can't afford Wi-Fi, so they're trying to steal it from neighboring properties. You know? I do know. They're poor. I watched the movie. They are. I think that's what Bong Joon Ho is trying to establish there. They're poor. They're poor, right? They are impoverished. 
but then a friend of the teenage son gives said son an opportunity to tutor a wealthy family's daughter. Yeah. Um, and in order for him to secure the job, he has to lie about his background and qualifications. And that gets him into this household. Uh-huh. And then he helps his family con their way into uh, service roles into the household alongside him. Yes. So none of them are qualified to perform the roles that they're employed to do in this household. It's all a big con, but they're, you know, they're, they're trying to be upwardly mobile. Yeah. And uh, we should say that this film contains a number of twists and turns. But we won't spoil here, but we, we will talk about in the future. Are we spoiling them here or we're not spoiling them here? No, we're not spoiling them here. That's what I said. Really? Like, who, who's, who, which imaginary, like, listener <laughs> I mean, are we sparing? No, no, but we have no imaginary listeners, so... So we should just spoil it, right? Uh, it's up to you, bro. I think what we should do is this. And, and we can take this approach to future reviews because we've never been very structured or organized about this in the past. But probably what we should do is if there is this sort of twist that is best left um, not revealed for those who haven't seen the film, we should speak about the film and our feelings about it generally... Mm, and then move on to spoiler. And then... Have a spoiler section. A spoiler section, yeah. Yeah, yeah sounds good. I mean, this is something that uh, that uh, that podcast that Adam Savage does does sometimes. I don't, I don't know what that is. It's called Still Untitled, The Adam Savage Project. Uh, <laughs> the original name for our show? Yes. Well, what, what is that? Well, Do you have, like, off. a baby rattle this time? <laughs> Hell. Christ almighty. Last last week, man, when I was editing that episode, I wanted to murder you. <laughs> what, was, what was that stupid, like, wine opener or something? I don't even remember. Bottle opener. You were drinking cider. And you were just jingling. I, I'm sorry that I can't. I, I bored you. You bore me. Well, be engaged. I try. Perform. I can't. Don't click your mouse. I don't have a mouse. You do. No, I have a trackpad. But that is the mouse of the laptop world. No. Where was we? Parasite. Parasite. We're talking about. So we've established. So I mean, that's the main. The main premise is we have. We're following this poor family. Yeah. As they ingratiate themselves. No. Insinuate. Insinuate, that's the word I want. Yep. As they insinuate themselves into this upper class world. That's mm-hmm. the main premise. I mean, that's what, that's what you get from the trailers. That's what people tell you about yeah. the film. And then there's some twists along the way. Yes. Before it ends. That's not it, folks. That's not it, folks. That's not it, folks. Do you know what? Like, I do this a bit, but you're, you have permission to do it too. If you eat your words and say something wrong, you can just take a beat and say the exact same thing again perfectly. It's actually really good for editing. Yeah, I'm never, I'm never going to do that. I know, but you should. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> so, Hugh, what did you think of... Okay, here we go. Parasite is a film that has received no small amount of acclaim. Uh, it has like a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I have not seen... I read one negative review. Mm-hmm. That's it. Just one. 
it wasn't even that negative. But this sort of universal claim pushes up against our own sort of antipathy towards... Antipathy. Whatever. Uh, Bong Joon-ho's previous films, especially his most recent film, Okja, which I think is terrible. And I think you also dislike, but not as much as I dislike it. It's pretty bad, yeah. I, I would be angle. I would be angling for that on uh, the worst of the decade lists. So anyway, there's these two sort of conflicting forces uh, buttering against each other, right? Well, yeah. So you you didn't like Akia, but you liked Snowpiercer. I did like Snowpiercer. What about the host? Was, Have you seen that? I've only seen portions of it. Okay. I am inclined to think that I would not care for it, but I could be wrong. But uh, I think. Um, neither of us have seen his like most acclaimed or the film that really got him the, the attention uh, Memories of a Murder, which I, I would still like to watch. That one sounds good to me. So, you all this is sort of a build up to say, did uh, Parasite live up to the lofty expectations that society has placed on it, that film culture has assigned to it, or was it another uh, sort of failure in your mind? Did you Did you find Parasite to be an insightful film? about the class struggle and the the way in which the, the rich destroy the, the poor and crush them under their boot? Or did you find its politics as tedious as its genre filmmaking? He'll answer me. <laughs> Motherfucker! I'm going to make a prediction that we're both going to have a similar opinion about this, but mm. we'll see. Mm. We'll, we'll see, Hugh. We'll so did I find this uh, an insightful piece of uh, class analysis? Well, no. <laughs> so for me, this seemed to have the same problems as the two other Bong Joon-ho films I've seen. Mm. So both The Host and Okia, uh, obviously Okia is a much worse film than, than The Host, but they both have a similar problem, which is repeated mm. here, in that he struggles to make a satisfying coherent whole even as he has good parts uh for a stretch of this you know i was like fair enough this is some sort of dark comedy some sort of dark farce really and we have like the family hiding from the rich employers and having to you know like wait under a table while they have sex on a couch you know this is like sitcom stuff really (laughs) um you know we have this class dynamic set up in this house we have all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. I was a lot, I was, you know, I was going along with it. I wasn't especially bowled over, but I was like, yeah, I, I could, I could get with this. This is fine enough. Mm. Some of the sequences are handled. Okay. But uh, shortly after the reveal, which we'll, we'll talk about later. Well. It really, it really felt like Bong Joon-ho didn't know what to do with the elements he had assembled. Mm. Certainly, as I said, he's not saying anything profound with his class analysis. Yeah. And there isn't exactly room for characterization or emotional connection either. Again, which yeah. which is fine if the film works as pure entertainment. Or pure, as like... this sort of genre exercise. If, it, if it's or, working as, like, a Marxist class analysis, too. Mm, that's true, that's true. Um, and there's other there's other ways to, to eschew characterization that don't aren't necessarily flaws of the film, you know? Yeah. And I, I think if... Bong Joon-ho stayed the course with what he had set up. So mm. this this con in this household mm. and took that in an interesting direction and took it to its logical conclusion. I would say that's fair enough. 
but he seems to just veer off into different directions. And the ultimate climax of this film, I, I thought, was particularly weak. Mm-hmm. And and by the end, I was pretty bored by it. How about you? I thought this was okay. I thought it was very entertaining for most of it. I agree that the ending I thought was a little or pretty weak and uninteresting and obvious. And ultimately, this just felt sort of I don't know, it feels like the sort of film that people make in order to attract critical attention. You know what I mean? Mm. It feels very sort of... I've been reading a lot of works about um, uh, the auteur theory recently. There's a very famous essay by Francois Truffaut called Gets a Certain Tendency in uh, French Cinema, where he rails against um, the tradition of quality, so-called, in in France, which is sort of was this, um, I don't know, not movement necessarily, but the sort of the main mode of production in 50s and late 40s French cinema was the sort of a little smutty, a little violent literary adaptation that like lightly satirized the bourgeoisie. Hmm. And um, I thought a lot about that. And I also thought a lot about uh, uh, Manny Farber's definition of white elephant art. It just, it, it's a film that, you know, feels constructed to this exact point that he wants to make, right? Not that it's especially profound, but uh, it feels like in in so having so much like tightness in it, you know, he has sucked out all the life (laughs) from this film. Essentially, even if I do think there are parts of this film that I thought were uh, amusing and entertaining, it felt very sort of felt a little flat, I'd say. That's that's the main sort of thing I take away from it. Hmm. It felt like a film designed to to attract critical praise basically um even if this film functioned as a blockbuster in south korea where it just made like eight million eighty million dollars like that so but i think it is fine i think you're right like everything everything does feel engineered to within an inch of its life from a certain perspective but at the same time a lot of the ideas just feel half-baked yeah and I think he has a a big problem balancing tones in his films. I feel like that's sort of a common thing that's leveled against the, I don't know, Korean cinema in general, Mm. is that there's a lot of, like, tonal confusion. And to be honest, it's not something that has ever bothered me, really. The problem for me with this film, really, is that it kept on reminding me of other messier, weirder, and moodier films that are very similar to it that I liked way more than it. it, uh, In that it's kind of just... It's it's a little like you know uh, one of my favorite films we've done on this podcast, uh, Park Chan Wook's The Handmaiden, uh, and it also reminded me a lot of last year's Burning, uh, which I don't think you've seen. Yeah, I certainly did think of The Handmaiden as well, and watching this made me like The Handmaiden more than I did at the time. Because you know The Handmaiden, not afraid to be grotesque, weird, even exploitative you know yeah i think you could level similar charges at, at both films in terms of these uh, plots that sort of unspool in a in a weird not always coherent fashion but i feel the, the the fun of the handmaiden is in part like this hyper convoluted plot right yeah the, it feels like that's that's more part of the charm of the handmaiden and it feels more like a, a flaw here I feel like the the plot isn't even that interesting i mean it's it's just it's just people under the stairs right Plus mm. the handmaiden. Yeah. <laughs> really. I did enjoy the reveal, though, I'll say. 
See, I actually didn't particularly enjoy that or was surprised by it just on the basis that every single review that I had like read or heard in the lead up to it was like, and then there's a big twist at the middle and yeah. it's not really a huge twist in the way no. that I was expecting it. So no. it kind of, it kind of felt a little bit flat when it was finally revealed. I just wish, I just wish people didn't talk about the fact that there was this big yeah. twist and then I, I, I would have been like, you would have been untainted. Mm. Uh, I, d- I did really like the imagery of the um, husband hitting the buttons with his head. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> See, that, that's, where it's, that's where it's hinting at a better direction in terms of its, you know, yeah, class satire. Yeah. Because that is, like, taking it to an extreme, right? Yeah, if this film had been more farcical, and it, uh, also if it had been more grotesque, too, you know? And there's, yeah. definitely, there's definitely hints of grotesquery in this. But I feel like it shies away from, like, what, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about uh, two films today later that are incredibly grotesque, right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I think definitely a comparison can be made between this and society, which we'll get to. But. Yeah. Um, not that I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not necessarily that those films, either of the two films we watched, are successfully, you know, using grotesque stuff. But I think of, like, I don't know, like, the the rich people in this... I don't know. They're just so airheaded, you know. It doesn't feel like. I mean, maybe that's part of his point, you know, that it's 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 the whole social class, right? That's you know at fault, not like these specific individuals, you know. Mm. Honestly, it kind of reminded me of Jojo Rabbit a little bit. One of the big like moral failures of that film is it doesn't really account for like actual Nazis, right? And this didn't feel like it accounted for actual rich people in a way, you know? I mean, I just, I just really think that Bong Joon-ho, on the evidence of this, and Anokia certainly, should not attempt this type of satire. It seems to be all he does. I don't think it's his strong suit. I think he does, he does have filmmaking chops. Like, there are sequences yeah. where he's, he's really on top of his game. Like, I actually really enjoyed the scene where they're having sex on top of the... with, their, with them under the table. I thought that was, was well-constructed. Hmm. Um, and there are other, a couple other, uh, honestly, I, I think that what I got, I, a lot of the thriller elements of this didn't really work at all, to be honest. No, I, but I think that's the problem. So there, there are certainly films and filmmakers whose messiness is a virtue yeah. and it's kind of part of their charm. Yeah. Like, um, Alexander Payne's downsizing. <laughs> the, the problem with, with, uh, Bong Joon-ho, this is a problem with all the films I've seen of his so far, mm. is that they're not satisfying on any of the levels that he's attempting because he's attempting too many things yeah. and going in too many different directions. So we get this film, which is not really satisfying as a thriller, as you've said, mm. doesn't really work as a farce because that only works in bursts. Certainly doesn't work as a satire. I think, I think it works better as a farce than any of the other modes for me. Yes, I agree. Like it, it seemed to have some momentum in that setup. I mean, there's just like certain like lines and, and, and scene setups that I thought, I thought were really effective. Mm. Like I like the bit where um, the daughter of the rich family is talking to her tutor, who is the son of the poor family, uh, about um, uh, whether or not he's attracted to um, the new art therapist, his who is in fact his sister. <laughs> and I thought that scene was really funny, <laughs> like a good uh, incest joke, uh, I'll say. But it's it's weird how like both like I mean there are parts of this that feel like really specific, you know. But it feels kind of, like, generalized, you know? Like, I feel like you could remake this film in any language. Mm. And um, in any, like, time period, really. You could still have almost the exact same film, right? Yeah, that's true. 
I mean, you know, as long as they had, had fucking cars, I guess. <laughs> um, but, and I, I think it's sort of flawed for that reason, too. I mean, it's like, you know, we can't really, maybe it's just because we're not versed, but I think it's it's more the fact that the, there's nothing in this film that really feels like, like, uh, real. And I think that's in part because they, like, apparently all the sets in it were constructed, you know? Hmm. I think it would have been better served if they had, especially, like, the poor family's residence, if they'd used a real location. I don't know. There's just something that feels so uh, false about it, you know? I think, like, the modernist home, they construct is a better set, and it feels more sterile, but it's it's supposed to be sterile, right? And they're, 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 their apartment just doesn't feel, except for the scene where it's, like, destroyed, it doesn't feel quite dirty enough. or twice. It doesn't feel, it just have, like, a lived-in quality, you know? It's, it's ironic... Ironic that the the film makes such a big deal over the sort of um, stench of poverty when uh, it it never feels like that 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 smell is like emanating off the screen like you never feel it reflected in anything. And the problem is like there is quite an impressive sequence, or what should on paper be an impressive sequence, in which the little shanty town is uh, flooded by sewage. I really did not like. That, did I care for that scene? And I think that could have worked in a better context. Like, it feels yeah. like he's going for some sort of dramatic emotional synthesis. Yeah. But that, that's a, that's another problem with this film is that, uh, it look, as we talk about, like, there's there's definitely cases in which, you know, you can make a film that doesn't, isn't re- require your, or, like, you know, tight characterizations or an emotional investment in the characters, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. But... But this this one seems to especially the India I thought was like really sentimental and it was just it was so often weird especially in that scene where like the the town is destroyed you're you're, like you're supposed to have this like really intense emotional effect at least that's what I'm getting from the film right is it wants me to feel this right that's what I interpreted as well yeah and I was just like I don't feel anything because you haven't like established this area at all you know and nor have you made us connected especially with the characters yeah you've which is again which is fine but if you want an emotional connection you needed to have done some groundwork yeah yeah if he just wanted this to be more of a direct satire or farce it's fine for them to be sort of cut out characters representing yeah. certain things and he's kind of arranging them on this checkerboard it, it just feels like he wants it both ways you know i just want him to go i don't know full-on genre not try yeah. and court yeah, I, t- I totally, I totally agree with that. Like, I mean, it feels like I mean, not to compare him to like Park Chan Wook, you know, mm. but at least Park Chan Wook feels like honest with when he makes like genre films, right? Yeah, there's, there's, like, it's you, more you gleeful. Tell he, you can tell that it, this is like stuff that like turns him on, you know, mm. or it feels like Bong Joon Ho is like deliberately choosing to engage with genre in order to make like social commentary, right? Mm. That's actually why I like Snowpiercer sort of the best of his films. That, that one also has, like, this, like, really deadly obvious, like, political metaphor in it, right? But that that one feels... There, there's, like, there's some real sequences of, like, gleeful genre shit in that, you know? Mm. I think make it uh, better than, I don't know, like, this film, for instance. Even though I don't think that film was entirely successful. No. Okay. Should we quickly talk about the spoiler part? Oh, yeah, I guess I guess we mentioned it a little bit, but not really got into it. So basically the uh, twist that uh, comes about halfway through the film is that the, the rich family has gone away on a campy trip. Um, the poor family has uh, decided to take advantage of the situation by, you know, eating all their food and drinking their expensive wines and stuff. Whatever, you know, like you would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but midway through this sort of party that they're having, the housekeeper who they uh, displaced... Ousted. Uh, yes. 
uh, returns, raining outside. Uh, she begs to be let in um, so that she can get something that she left in the basement. That's what she says anyway. Um, they let her in. Turns out the thing that she had left in the basement, which is actually not a basement, but a sort of tunnel, sort of uh, bomb shelter slash uh, North Korea invasion shelter, um, is her husband who lives in this house and operates the, uh, uh, what you would assume, motion sensor lights. Um, yeah, he operates them manually by watching a, a camera feed of like people walking around the house yes. and he turns on the lights and stuff. <laughs> I, I, I liked the actor who played him a lot because <laughs> he was yeah. appropriately demented. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I like about. Um, I feel like American movies always always fuck up by not casting weird people in their movies. You know, I think that's a big failing. I mean, I, I guess like modern American films. You know, like everyone in in American movies these days just looks sort of like all the edges have been sanded off to some degree. Um, and it's something that I really appreciate watching both old films and foreign films is that they still cast weird people in them. Mm. And this guy looks really weird. And I like that about him. <laughs> so yeah, essentially what they're doing is they've, they've established the class dynamic initially of this, this poor family and this upper class family. Mm-hmm. And then the reveal is that there's this whole other layer, this other strata where, you know, this guy just lives in a bomb shelter uh, operating the lights and communicating by um, Morse code. Yeah. With the father who's complicit in it. Yeah. And he, like, they, and he like worships the rich family. Yeah. So he's essentially a, a slave in the basement. Which I, I, again, I think is like the best aspect of the film to some degree. But yeah, the, the problem is like the way we've got there or the context of that reveal is that we've been following this other family. Uh-huh. And their particular struggle, and then it's been revealed that you know there's someone even lower than them yeah. in this dynamic. But that basically destabilizes the the story that we've been following. So now that they, there's no place for that to to go, now that we've got this particular reveal, I think it may have been more interesting if we followed the rich family, and then it was revealed that there's this you know an underclass in that house keeping it working. Yeah, it's a pretty. Uh, obvious metaphor, right? That the the rich are completely oblivious to, but it is it, there's something uh, potent about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, because it's like it's like a grotesque uh, exaggeration. Yeah, and if he pushed it further in that direction, and that was like the focus of the film, that could have worked. Or if he took out that element and just focused on the repercussions of what the initial family have done and how that spirals out of control, that could have worked. They don't work together. I, I really just like how they wrapped up that, that sequence, too, where they sort of make the um, husband sort of just, I don't know, try to kill everyone, which I did, I thought was just completely, like, I don't know, it just didn't fit with anything they had developed, that he developed previously. Like, to me, it would make sense if the con just got so out of control. That they just spiraled into violence, yeah. But, I mean, it, it, it would have made more sense to me, too, if, he, if, it, if it had, like, you know, transitioned to this, like, sort of intra-class warfare i think that's a more interesting like theme to explore too that's true that could have worked which, yeah. it, which is where it seems just like it's going to develop at first right and that could have all been happening you know under the noses of this rich family yeah until which it have, would have also been funny and, mm. and sort of cutting but no uh yeah yep so it was okay <laughs> three stars yeah, it was okay. It's not like the, there are stretches of it that are entertaining. It's not a disaster. I didn't hate this. And it's one of those things that you have to be conscious of not underrating it because so many people are overrating it. Yeah. 
So, uh, shall we move on? Let's do it. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza, lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a police, sorry, dig them fights. Okay, so uh, I have had no pizza experiences in the last week, but I believe you have. Yeah, I, I just had some pizza, you. Just uh, had some pizza right now? Uh-huh. In your underwear? Is that why you were saving the underwear thing? No. Okay. Um, so for dinner this week, uh, instead of getting my usual McDonald's, <laughs> I uh, decided to purchase a frozen pizza. This is a Newman's own brand of frozen pizza, which is a white pizza. Uh, with spinach and mozzarella and white sauce. And it was really tasty. What's the white sauce made of? I think it's just a Alfredo sauce, but I don't know. What's an Alfredo sauce? It's a type of Italian sauce. Is it like a cheese sauce? I don't think so, but maybe. I think it's a cream sauce. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, it's good stuff. You know, it's a good it's a good pizza, good frozen pizza. That's That's all the pizza I've had. Hmm. Right now, let's move on to our what, what? What is the name of this segment? The projects. Project time. Project time. It's 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 project time. Halloween special. first so i mean the order i watched them was society and then organ so we could do that yeah that's also the order i watched them in so let's do that daddy says the board don't suit you he's invested in my future society mom is looking at me funny where is everyone so gummy Yeah. Yeah. So society. What is society? Well, society. Society is a. Well, I. I just called you society. Well, Hugh. Society is a <laughs> thing that we all live in. But more specifically, it's a horror film from the 1980s. Specifically, 1989. Yeah. Although it was not released until 1992, apparently. Mm. I think it had a, a release in 1989, according to Wikipedia in London. Hmm but it was not released in the States until 1992. So it's sort of like a Clifford situation. Um, so yes, uh, we're in California. We're in Beverly Hills. It's part of California. Mm. Los Angeles. Beverly Hills. That's where, where I, I want to be. Living in Beverly Hills. Yeah, Beverly now, that now that we've covered uh, Weezer's best moment. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think about Weezer? Not a great deal. <laughs> I really liked uh, their first two albums when I was a teenager. Well, that is the critical consensus as well. Mm. And I like uh, various other songs from their later albums too. Like Island in the Sun. Yep. And, That's a good uh, song. They yeah, do have, I mean, they that. do have their moments. Yeah. Who doesn't? They also have uh, their share of very bad moments. So they're sort of like the Bong Joon-ho of uh, indie bands. 
So, um, society, uh, California, we're in Beverly Hills. Um, there's a little boy. He's really a 17-year-old. Played uh, by Billy Warlock. His name is also Bill. Uh, Billy Warlock, sort of the uh, off, off-brand uh, Michael J. Fox. He sort of, he sort of looks like a cross between Michael J. Fox and Rob Lowe. Mm. Yeah, I, I can, I can see that. And he sort of is playing a similar type in that, uh, if let's say there's a bully, there's eight, there's plenty of eighty, 80 movies. Let's say like Gremlins. They're not Gremlins. Let's maybe Gremlins. I don't know. I've never seen Gremlins. I have. <laughs> but let's say uh, the Goonies. I'm sure there's some bully characters in that film, right? Indeed. Uh, and unlike most um, sort of 80s like uh, uh, horror movies and um, sort of teen movies, I'd say, uh, which typically focus on like weirdo outcast characters to some degree, you know. Like Andre 3000, Big Boy. No. There's like characters who are uh, just misfits, let's say. Like the Breakfast Club types. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, like um, Glenn Danzig. Other uh, this guy is is not a misfit at all. Well, in the traditional sense, he, he seems to be some sort of golden boy. He plays basketball. He's gonna he's running for the student council president, um, but he is um, besought by these uh, sort of existential um, fears, um, paranoia. Uh, he's shot through with paranoia. He's he's uh, going to therapy to try to resolve these issues. Um, specifically, he's, he's paranoid that his parents are hiding something from him. Uh, he doesn't particularly look like them. They seem to exclude him from the uh, high society gatherings that they attend. Um, and he, he just is suspicious that something is up. Hmm. How much do we want to spoil of this movie? <laughs> we can spoil all of it because it's from 1989. That's true. And I don't see how this film would be possible to talk about without completely yeah. spoiling. Uh, so uh, it turns out that... Um, his sister's ex-boyfriend, uh, sort of this um, loser, let's say, uh, who makes a video recording that suggests maybe they're into some sort of weird orgy cult or something. There's an intimation of incest. Um, and he gets killed. There's some other paranoid stuff, yada, yada. Eventually, it's revealed that um, all the upper crust of this Beverly Hills community that has excluded him from their lives is in fact uh, a different race of human-like creatures uh, that feed by shunting, which is sort of the in-between of, uh, let's say, uh, genetic splicing and um, uh, melty cheese and eating and orgy, too. Um, just say they sort of all melt together into one big goop monster <laughs> that also seems really horny. <laughs> Uh, and that's the movie, basically. Did you recognize uh, Mr. Warlock from Halloween 2? I did not. Um, mm. Apparently his role is so small that it's not even listed on Wikipedia. So It's listed on his Wikipedia. Oh, no, it is listed on Wikipedia. I am mistaken. Craig Levin. I, I, don't, I don't know. I did not recognize him. It's a, it's a okay. small role, apparently. He doesn't have the largest of uh, filmographies. Well, I wonder why. Almost distinguished. He's in Mr. Payback, though. The interactive film. Yeah, he plays Mr. Payback. Oh, wow. I remember that poster. My God. He was in General Hospital for like seven years. Anyway, what do you think about Society, Hugh? Uh, I dug it. Yeah. This this film was fun. It's a... it, It has the texture of a goofy 
80s teen sex comedy mm. for like you know the first three quarters or so with it with a dollop of uh 70s style paranoia thriller well yeah with this thread of like what's actually going on with with yeah. my family you know and uh you know relatively restrained in terms of its horror and gore up until the famous notorious final sequence yes which has all of the horror and all of the gore <laughs> So I sort of knew I was going to enjoy this film the moment the credit for Screaming Mad George appeared on the screen. Yeah, I, I don't know what that means. So so the makeup effects were by a guy who calls himself Screaming Mad George, who is actually Japanese. So there's a connection yeah. between this and organ in terms of body horror stuff. <laughs> Wait. I mean, sort of. Yeah, two Japanese gore films. This is not a Japanese I mean, film. the auto of this film is Screaming Mad George more so I mean, than I mean, the director. But I, I think that the textures of the other parts of the film are also feel apt, right? Yeah, yeah. And, th- and there's a way that the, the effects are heightened through, you know, the direction, too, that I think are is effective. Yeah, yeah. I'm being, I'm being somewhat facetious, but certainly Screaming Mad George is a big part of this film's success. I'm reading about his, uh, you know the reason he calls himself Scream Mad George? Because of Screaming Jay Hawkins and Mad Magazine. Yeah, that's what Wikipedia says anyway. That's exactly where I am, buddy. Uh, he's uh, he's done some effects work, some uh, good effects work. Predator, Big Trouble in Little China. Yep. Several of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Freaked. And he directed The Giver with Mark Hamill, which is an anime adaptation, actually. Wow. I think, I think it may have been the first American anime adaptation. Or MOG adaptation, anyway. Which is produced by Brian Yuzna. Wow. Yeah. Because he's worked with Yuzna on several other films yeah. after this. And Yuzna is probably better known as a producer because he produced several of Stuart Gordon's oeuvre, like Reanimator and other films. And he, d- he ended up making some of the reanimated sequels and he also worked with gordon on honey i shrunk the kids originally so gordon direct that no he he started directing it i believe and then he was replaced or something there's a funny it's a weird story about honey i shrunk the kids uh so yeah i i agree with you this is about this is a this is a good good old time <laughs> the effects are uh disgusting but enjoyably so i think yeah, I, I don't think it's off-putting at all. It's that's, I mean, I, honestly, I don't find any of the body horror effects of, of the golden age of body horror off-putting. I, I just enjoy them. I find them satisfying. I find some of the Cronenberg stuff to be a little upsetting, but not this film. Even though it has a, a visceral quality lacking from, you know, the CGI equivalent, yeah. it never feels so close to reality that no. you get you get actual uh, it feels very you know gummy yeah in a, in a good way it makes this film in a good fun way. as opposed to like uh i don't even know what it would be if it, if it, if it took itself really seriously bad i guess I, I just like the fact that it's like we've we've created the architecture for this one scene mm, in this film yeah. and screaming mad george just go absolutely bonkers with every effect yeah, you could does. possibly want to do yeah and he delivers. He does. And I mean, I haven't read that much about this film. It it seems like the ending, the actual ending after that sequence is like an afterthought. It doesn't really make sense how they escape. It's, it is so hilariously brief. <laughs> too. It just ends with, I like that it just ends with them escaping and then it's like, 
We're gonna have one more joke, and that's it. That's the movie. And no one tries to stop them leave just because yeah, he turned he, one of them inside out. Yeah. Which I mean, like they didn't seem that cut up by it. They could have still yeah. stopped him and turned him inside out pretty quickly. And and gooped him up, sucked all the life out of him. I really enjoyed the um, like performances in this film. Hmm. <laughs> they were very like uh, appropriately set to the type of movie this is. You know, uh, I guess maybe. Billy Warlock being an exception, but his sort of... Um, I think he, he works in the... In the his in his, his dopiness is, is effective, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that it works for the character. Yeah, definitely. I just like the fact that, obviously, Warlock is not his birth name. His birth name is Lemming. No, but what is funny <laughs> is that he did adapt Warlock from his father. Father's pseudonym. Oh, so his father was Michael Myers in Halloween 2. But Dick Warlock is pretty well known for stuff. But he, uh, we we just specify Dick Warlock being a he's a stunt man and a stunt coordinator. Oh yeah, because he did escape from New York yep. and Commando and the Master TV series. <laughs> well, this show sounds crazy. The Master, an American ninja themed action adventure television series. Hey, can you guess which former spaghetti western star uh, is was on the show? Eli Wallach. Nope. Uh, it is Lee Van Cleef. Ah, oh, close. An aging ninja master. <laughs> Sounds great. What is with the 1980s and ninjas in America? <laughs> um, anyway, let's go back to society. <laughs> if there's obviously could. not like a ton to talk about, though, you know? Well, there is kind of in comparison with uh, Parasite. I feel like this mm. is the way to do that type of satire. Yeah, because it, it it's not really taking yourself seriously at all. Like, there's, a, there's a pretty consistent tone that's in this film, right? Yeah, and it, it, but it's like its central metaphor is so like enjoyably on the nose and so and taken so far yeah that it works for that reason. Or it's like you can be like, oh, you know, the, the rich are a uh, bunch of they're orgiastic freaks, right? Whereas, yeah, whereas Parasite didn't go far enough to no. make up for its lack of nuance. I Definitely. Think. It Definitely. wanted to have it both ways. Well, this way. goes perfectly far enough to make up for its lack of nuance. <laughs> and, and I love it. Like, it actually works quite well as, as satire. I genuinely that, think it does. Because I, I really like the parts with the the judge, especially in the end. And that actor yeah. really fucking goes for it. <laughs> like, can you imagine being an old man smoking a cigar as you're, like, naked? <laughs> <laughs> But to plug your face in goop, great stuff. The bit I really liked was, like, the reveal, like, when, you know, when he's ultimately captured by the cult and they're all there and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they're revealing who they are. And he's like, yeah, you're space aliens. And, like, no, 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 we're just the rich. This yeah. is the, what the rich do. This is what the rich has always done. And I thought that was yeah. a great touch. It wasn't just that, you know, there's that synchronicity that is aliens must masquerading as the upper class. It just yeah. actually is what society yeah. has always been. Yeah. yeah. I thought that's, that's, that's the right sort of satire. And, um, it actually sort of prefigures like get out. It's essentially mm. a very similar type of thing. Yeah. You know, don't cross a Rachel Vexer. It's like versus... translating this class anxiety yeah. into this, this horror context. Yeah. But in quite a satisfying way. Yeah, I agree. I do think this film was a little long, though. Yeah, perhaps. But I think it's. I think the way that it restrains itself and masquerades as like a teen sex comedy for so long. Yeah. Makes it a really satisfying conclusion. I think it probably would have been more satisfying if it had a downbeat ending. To be honest. Yeah. 
or just like I don't I don't know I don't know. But the thing is, like I, I don't know. I kind of enjoy how like stupid the idiot is too. You know, it's basically perfunctory. It doesn't really matter. Like you just no. it's there. Whatever. The, the point of the film is that sequence. I think this the film probably would have been better if yeah if it it ended with him just getting consumed. You know, more <laughs> um, if like. I don't know, I thought the love story was so, like, um, ridiculous. Yeah. But I do like the scene where they're having sex, and she, like... <laughs> I really like the effects of that, too. <laughs> She's, like, weeding with her, like, legs pointed one way and her torso pointed the other. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. But it, does, it does raise an interesting question about these creatures' physiology. They can have sex with humans. Like, what happens if there's... A, what's the progeny of that, that uh, mating? They are humans, essentially. Mm. It's just that they've been... It's This is the product of... It basically, what it's positing is this is the product of upper-class inbreeding. Mm. Yeah. It, it just, it's just such perfectly nails, like, this, like, yuppie tone, you know? Mm. That, like, pervades through, like, I don't know, like, John Hughes movies and, and other, yeah, teen sex comedies, you know? Hey, how much did you know about this film before you saw it? So, I saw the thread on Twitter in which people were posting little clips of their most gross-out moments in mm. film watching. And I saw a clip or a still of society. Mm. And then I think I had read, like, a review of it that said, you know, it's okay, but then the last 20 minutes are great. You know, so I, I knew yeah. to expect this big sequence. How about you? I, I basically had the same experience, but I think that could have lessened the film a bit to me. I mean, it does foreshadow it in, like, the opening credit bit. Yeah. And in the there's, like, some other moments. But the film is sort of, like, plays with their, your, the character's, like, uh, sense of reality, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think this would have been a more effective film if it almost had not teased it at all, you know? Or if it, yeah, if it, if it had been more credible that he was imagining everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That too. But, yeah, I think, I think this is a really solid film. Me too. It does make me interested to see what else Brian Yesna directed, even if nothing uh, on his filmography seems especially striking. Maybe one of the um, reanimator films that he directed. So, uh, is anybody practicing this type of practical gore effect these days? I mean, I don't really go to horror movies anymore because they all seem so boring. So I don't really know, you know. Yeah, I know. I know. Like with the horror films that get released, no one is really doing this type of thing. But the technology has developed probably significantly since 1989, and I just mean the practical technology in terms of materials and knowledge, even if the, you know, the industry application completely changed and shifted over to digital and whatever. I still think you could, you could make some amazing effects now. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm just curious about whether there's still people that do it. Man, I guess I can't think of any like, examples of like, like gross-out creature features like this. And you could also couple it well with digital technology, just yeah. for like the cleanup sort of bits and, yeah. and to cover some stuff up that wouldn't be possible before, but not actually like do a whole CGI render of someone's head or something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's silly to say like, oh, we should never ever use digital effects. No, I agree. Um, and obviously digital effects can produce a lot of wonderful movies and yeah. not try to be technophobic. But I, I, also, I also think um, to follow on from our discussion last week of In the Mouth of Madness, society occupies a, a, a particular space for horror that doesn't seem to be practiced anymore. Yeah, like fun, gross horror. Um, anyway. Good stuff. Yep. So, Oregon. Oh, man. Oh, man. 
game. Um, this is Kai Fujiwara, probably best known for being the uh, female lead slash cinematographer of, or one of the cinematographers of Tetsuo the Iron Man, which we talked about, a, or I talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, sort of body horror cult film mm-hmm. by Shinya Tsukimoto. Uh, and this was her directorial debut, which came out in 1996, um, which she starred in, did a cinematography for. Uh, wrote, produced, directed, all of those things. And it is a very strange horror film about, uh, sort of elliptically told, uh, about these uh, two detectives who um, are on the trail of this organ smuggling ring, which I gotta say, what is it? I've seen a couple of Japanese films about organ smuggling. <laughs> <laughs> I need to possibly do more research about why this is a topic that uh, was into it. Uh, anyway, uh, they try to infiltrate this organ smuggling ring. Um, they get found out. One of the police officers gets kidnapped uh, and taken to the lair of um, one of the, the brother half of the brother-sister duo, which will be this ring of organ smugglers. Um, the other cop kind of goes on the standard cop um, brutality streak of trying to locate him. Uh, there's also some other weird digressions and um, narrative is is not what we, you would describe as the clearest in this film. But it's definitely discernible. Um, eventually, there's a tw- the twin, the identical twin of the police officer who was kidnapped is introduced, who is similarly looking uh, for the um, kidnapped detective. And My God, I had no idea they were supposed to be identical twins. I I, I was just so confused. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading the Wikipedia page, like, <laughs> going, wow, is this the film I watched? <laughs> I, was also, I, was, I was also like, how could you discern that? But uh, the EQs are involved somehow, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of really grotesque, like, fluids and, and organs that are, like, spilling off of people, and... A lot of like blood and and gross out effects. I don't know. <laughs> it's a realistic imagery, let's say. Um, <laughs> anyway, yes, that's that's about it, right? Somehow this was uh, based on a play. <laughs> yeah, I would I would love to see what this looked like as a play. So yes, after according to Wikipedia, after she worked on Tetsuo. <laughs> Yeah. Fujiwara formed an experimental theatre company called the Organ Vital Company. Mm. And they made the play on which this film was based. Yes. And uh, Tusuke Vital also sort of came from the theatre, so interesting mm. a parallel between them. And actually, for a minute, I thought that he was actually in this movie, but I think I am mistaken. But there is a guy who looks a little bit like him in this movie, <laughs> which made me even more confused, to be honest. It didn't help in terms of this film's narrative clarity that I began watching it at 3.10 in the morning. <laughs> uh, it did, did, did it not help or was it the perfect time to watch it? <laughs> that's, that's the debate, right? Because <laughs> well, I was wondering, like, is this film, like, making no sense whatsoever and what the hell is going on? Or am I just, like, falling asleep for little stretches of important narrative? Or? Uh, you, I could say, having watched it this morning after, you know, I, I didn't get that much sleep last night. So I was pretty tired when I started watching this. But uh, after a cup of coffee in my hand, um, 
about about uh, nine p nine a.m. I uh, have to say that uh, I was also pretty confused about what was going on. So, <laughs> you know. so I, I mean, pretty quickly, I just let it wash over me instead mm-hmm. of bothering to try and keep up with exactly what was going on. Like, you, you know, you had some good guys, you had some bad guys, you had some weird organ harvesting, and you had some body horror stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's much more of a mood film than... Let it flow over you. Yeah. Um... Well, what did you think of it? Um, I don't know. I I had uh, I would say mixed to positive response to this, you know. Hmm. Uh, where I think there are some really grotesque sequences in this. Yeah. That uh, I found more disturbing than pretty much any of the other horror movies we've talked about, except for maybe Ogs. Um, just because they're they're just they're so viscous and and I don't know. There's just something so gross about this movie, you know. Uh, I hate watching people get injected with syringes. Oh, really? <laughs> Devin's, yeah, it happens a lot in this film. Um, I think there's just some amazingly well-realized like mood stuff in this movie, too. I really like the soundtrack a lot. Yeah, the soundtrack is great. Uh, and apparently the person who did the sound also edited this movie. So And is in the movie. Yeah. Um, but there are also such of this where I was kind of bored. So I would say... When it when it it's working, I thought it was like a really effective just sort of evocation of like this, um, you know, bodily disgust. Right? It was it's it's it's, not, it's it's good stuff. I don't know. I I definitely say I I'm happy that I watched it because yeah, it was, yeah. it's um it it, it evokes it, it's you know going for this specific sort of dread like biopunkish mood. It's like this like sick mood, and I think it really hits it for a decent amount of the running time. I think I think it's pretty hard mood to conjure too, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, it, I think it does a pretty effective job at doing that. Um, and honestly, I think the sort of narrative um, confusion helps it achieve that mood too, you know? Yeah. Um, where you're often giving these like weird just sort of contextless like flashbacks or just this cut away. Like there's this amazing sequence where um, the, the, sort of brother leader of the this organ smuggling gang uh, has this fantasy um, about a schoolgirl who's emerging from this this um, cocoon. It's just so, like, disgusting, you know? <laughs> it's just, like, so gross. Um, I, thought, I, I think that was, like, the high point of the film for me. It was just so, like, nauseating, you know? Just that whole, like, bit where, you know, it's sort of it, the this girl comes into his office because he works at, like, a, a either a college or a boarding school. And it's, like, and it's like this sort of, like, it almost seems like it's going to turn into, like, a, you know, a, a porn for a little bit. Where she's like, oh, I'm failing my biology class. What can I do about that? And I actually thought it was really funny, the, the bit where she, like, gets down on her knees, right? Mm. And then does a cartwheel. <laughs> It's like this is so weird. Um, she, to be clear, she does the cartwheel to demonstrate her ineptitude at physical education. Well, she's about to get a different kind of physical education, if you know what I mean. And then she's about to get her stomach cut open by a, <laughs> a scalpel. <laughs> but like, but you haven't really been introduced to this character at all, you know? Either of them, I guess. And there's just this bit where the 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 man like touches his stomach and there's just like this green like goop on his fingers, you know, it's like, so like disgusting. 
don't so know. according to Wikipedia, we learn that his mother bit off his genitals when he was young. And like his victims, he is now running away. Yeah, did we learn you, that? Do, you do see that. You do see that there, there's that flashback. I don't remember him getting his genitals bit off. I don't think. I think. I think that's just wrong. But there's a scene where like the the mom's like, "I'm going to cut your penis off." But but then but then it, it says his dick is saved, right? I don't know. I I, I maybe I zoned out for that bit. <laughs> uh, it's it's a little confusing. Then there's the scene where he's like having sex with that other woman. So I, I don't know. It's it's ambiguous. Who knows? But I just thought I thought this film. I mean, obviously it's like really low budget, you know. Yeah. And I thought it was like. I don't know. I've seen like a lot of Japanese films that have a similarly low budget that similarly pull off these like really grotesque effects, like Tetsuo being a prime example of it. And I always find it really impressive that these films are able to make these like, you know, and part of it is just the like um, the graininess of the film stock that they're using, which I see this is shot on 16 millimeter, but I, I have no idea. But it, it just felt like sort of like that, you know, and maybe it was just the um, transfer that we watched too, which is pretty bad. But there's something that honestly like enhanced it to some degree, you know. Just and there's there's like some weird like beautiful stuff in this film too I think, I I, I yeah the more I'm talking about it, the more I think I'm 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 uh, admitting that I really like this movie so. <laughs> uh, I was just saying that uh, Kaifu Jiwara only made one other film. Yeah, I mean, what what did you what did you think? What did I think? Yeah. Um. Well, unfortunately for the podcast, I completely agree with you. Well, this is this is this is uh. I think I think the last couple of weeks we've had some disagreements a little bit. I guess not. I guess not with the uh, Gemini Man. What else did we watch last week? I can't even remember. We had a disagreement about angst. Oh, angst. Yeah, but and then previously we had a disagreement at Astra. We had a couple of. Mm. We had a, we had a, a, a run of a uh, couple of spats. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this week we're in uh, agreement. It seems. Yeah, pretty much total harmony this week because yeah, I think mixed to positive is a good assessment of this film. And I also agree with you that the more you kind of talk about it and think about it, the better it becomes. Yeah, because it, it becomes less like a film you're experiencing, more like this like, weird street that you had, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, I think it did actually help that I was, like, really tired and watching this at 3 a.m. I think this is probably the right way to watch this film. Yeah. Um, and you can tell it's really low budget. Yeah. And I think that gives it a lot of vitality. And yeah, I, I agree with you that the narrative incoherence also lends it something because it kind of abstracts everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it, let's not, let's be, let's be clear. Cause I mean, I feel like when you say incoherence, like it's, 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 you're saying that the film is failing to be. Well, no, I'm not necessarily saying it's, it's trying to be more coherent than it is. Yeah. We could say it's like, we could say it's like fragmentary deliberate, yeah. you know? And I feel like that's definitely, I mean, that feels intentional, you know, like just the way that this one was edited. I don't think it's meant to be quite as confusing as no, it not. is in terms of like, who's that? What are they doing? What's that person? Yeah. You know, yeah. we're probably meant to follow it a bit more closely than yeah. that. But um, I, I don't think it's entirely meant to be no. a straightforward linear narrative that you follow beat for beat. Um, and I, obviously the mood is a big part of it. But I do think that that quality does give this abstract effect so that you can absorb these bizarre images and these bizarre effects. And, like, early on, I, I especially think the low budget works in its favour during this quite confusing opening stretch where they're having this confrontation, the police officers are having this confrontation with the bad guys harvesting organs at this factory. They've been staking them out and trying to find them, whatever. And it was so confusing, actually, what happened in that sequence and yeah. who got 
killed and captured and who escaped. I don't know what was going on. I had no idea. And because it was so low budget and they're just in these like rooms with some cheap curtains thrown up, you know, abandoned. Yeah. Like found industrial spaces, you know, it it sort of reminded me of of like a film you'd make as a teenager with like your friends running around falling over each other, but like spiked with this dread of body horror and, um, you know, some sort of adult sophistication there as well. Yeah. And I kind of enjoyed that effect of just watching these people running around and falling over themselves. And then yeah. these these sort of startling moments of, of body horror, which, I mean, they also look low budget. Yeah. But I didn't find any of the effects, like, gross in any way, particularly because they didn't look particularly convincing. But I liked that artificial effect. I mean, it's like the Uzi, like, guck, I find more disgusting than you do, perhaps. I think the thing that sells it is the continuity between the disgusting bit and the rest of the skin. Yeah, for sure. And the lower the budget, the the less continuity there is. So it looks a bit silly, which I didn't mind. I think it works for this film. Mm. Maybe if it was more disgusting, it'd be a less pleasant experience overall. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. There is something about this. There's definitely something about this. And I kind of... Uh, it's, it's a shame to learn that she only made one more film. I think yeah. she established something really interesting. I, I definitely want to want to want to see if I can't track that particular film down. Edo is it called? Yeah, yeah. from two thousand five. So it was quite apparently, a long time after. Apparently, that. it did get a uh, a release in America to some degree. Anyway, it has a translation. Anyway, uh, anyway, so let's let's move on. Uh, burn Hollywood, burn. Um, yeah, that's the one. Hollywood moon. That's right, mama. Hollywood moon. Let's let's navigate through Box Office Mojo's new recent unnavigatable design. Oh, it's horrible. What the fuck happened? I do, I do resent it when websites that look like they're from 1995 get a, you know, decades late overhaul. <laughs> I, do, I do think it's funny that it, did, it does look like a website that's like now. It looks like a website that would come out in like 2010, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's still behind the times, yeah. Was Box Office Mojo always part of IMDb or, or did they get bought out? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I feel like I didn't notice that particular logo in the corner. I don't remember it either, but honestly, I feel like if this is a recent acquisition or they're, they're trying to incorporate it more to their central brand, then it's only a matter of time before it becomes part of IMDb itself, which would make some sense, I guess. Yeah. But, which is a shame. But IMDb is a horrible website these days. I, I hate being on IMDb enough. But anyway, let's, let's, let's do it. Box office this is the weekend box office for both countries from October 24th to 27th, 2019. Number one movie in Australia is Joker. Mistress of Evil. This was the same as last week, wasn't it? But Joker and Maleficent, Mistress of Evil in America... The only have a difference about of a uh, of about a hundred thousand dollars in America. Hmm. So, Joker is really uh, making a lot of money. 
there's a bigger difference and especially weighted to the proportion of, of each earning in Australia. So Maleficent made 1.2 mil, the Joker made, you know, just under 2 mil. Uh, it's just Joker. Joker. Yeah, are you ready? What are we doing? The news? Yeah, we've got to do the news. Have you got a news item? Because um, I'll be selecting one while you talk about it. I do not have one. Oh, damn it. Okay. I had one else we did, but then I realized it was a film or a TV thing, which is just not what we talk about on the show. Yeah, that's right. Fuck that medium. Okay, here we go. Hmm. Oh, no, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> okay. No, that's also TV. Fuck. Goddamn. All right, I've got one. This is one that you probably would have wanted to pick, but I've snatched it. I'm going to announce it right oh, now. Shit. Do it. Oscar Isaac to star in Paul Schrader's next film, The Card Counter. Mm. So the film, written and directed by Schrader, follows William Tell, uh, mm. a gambler and former serviceman, who sets out to reform a young man seeking revenge on a mutual enemy from their past. All right, here we go. I'm ready. All right, Patrick Schwarzenegger, um, offspring of Arnold, has mm-hmm. joined Amy Poehler's drama Moxie. Polar is directing and producing Moxie from a screenplay by Tamara Chesna based on the Jennifer Matthew book Moxie. Robinson will play a girl from a small town who's inspired by her mother's riot girl past and serves a feminist revolution at her high school. <laughs> God, this sounds terrible. <laughs> and I just know that we're going to do it. Did you know, when I was in high school, I really liked riot girl music a lot. But did you start a feminist revolution in your high school? No. I started a... Um, uh, men's rights. Uh, <laughs> I, t- I took the wrong message. <laughs> anyway, okay, um, that's it. Uh, bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. I'll go first. Go for it, bro. Uh, so the only film, the only film that I watched in between editing the last podcast, making a promo for the last podcast, is Patterson. Um, so this is a Jim Jarmusch film from a few years ago. It received quite a bit of acclaim, more so than his modern day films typically get at the time. Starring Adam Driver, um, I started watching it maybe. A year or two ago, I thought, oh God, this is terrible. And I gave up after about 10 minutes and didn't have any desire to go back to it. Um, For whatever reason, I finally decided to start again and watch the film in its entirety just so I could check it off the list and have an opinion about it, which is always a good reason to watch films. Uh And uh, my opinion is that it's pretty bad. But I also kind of like it, Mm. almost for its flaws. So I'll borrow the description by the Australian critic Jake Wilson, 
when he said that this this film's presentation of this working class world is essentially like a bohemian fantasia in that we have like little kids quoting poetry the dialogue he overhears from other bus passengers is incredibly not true to life <laughs> and um it's this bus driver who writes poetry and his girlfriend is sort of a a flake who decorates the apartment and uh decides to be a, a country singer and, and goes on all sorts of whims and stuff so there's a lot of sort of goofy elements to this film and um it sort of goes out of his out of its way to sort of say hey look this adam driver guy he's cool with black people i actually don't think there's any other white characters in the film except for adam driver which is strange aren't the moonrise kingdom kids in it yes but like like for a second on a bus they're they're a willy white no but like as in any of the actual cast the main cast of characters i don't think any of them are white except for it's racist what you're saying no, but like it's one of those things where the whole film is centered around a white man. It doesn't really matter that everyone else is not white per se. It's it's the added ad astra of its time. It's a little bit of a work screen, maybe. Um, <laughs> a nice casual uh, slipping in. That's right. Um, it's got to catch on. So the film plays with the repetition of a guy with a day job even though it's made by someone who has no idea what that would be like by the f- if this film is any evidence. Yeah. And um, it's just structured around days of the week. It follows the same routine with some minor variation. But curiously, I didn't find it at all boring. I found it actually quite entertaining to get through in contrast to the first time I tried to watch it. And there is something goofy but also slightly endearing about it in terms of its presentation of um, you know, the desire to make art. So there you go. I'm not going to watch That's it. Patterson. I... You would you would detest it, which I, I, is why I kind of I would kind of like for you to watch it. All right, so I started my uh, week by watching Robert Edgar's The Lighthouse, which I alluded to earlier, which just, is basically... I basically had the exact same opinion that I had about um, Parasite, actually, about this film. You know, the class politics for Western Tech role which is that um, it just sort of, it feels pretty empty and flat um, and like just sort of like a, a Guy Madden movie, but divested of all the like weird personal stuff that's in Guy Madden movies, you know, mm. um, which is why they're interesting <laughs> and not just like dull formal exercises, which this feels at times uh, does not feel like any reason why it should have been in black and white in this like dumb aspect ratio. Um, and basically all the things that are effective about it have to do with the performances of Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson and some of the monologues and dialogue that they're given is entertaining. Um, but just like Parasite, if you remove the social thriller aspects of Parasite and add in some like cosmic horror-ish Lovecraft stuff, um, I basically feel the same, which is that I think this film is best as a comedy. <laughs> and mm. when it tries to do the other genre stuff, I thought it was pretty... Uh, flawed, and I did not think it's depiction of um, uh, just sort of like Patterson, I guess. Uh, it's re- depiction of like routine existence was. Uh, it just felt felt flat. I'd say. Yeah. Um, and I really, I, I become really annoyed with like this sort of overly fetishized, um, 
aesthetic that uh, I feel like a lot of A24 movies have, which this film definitely has, where everything just feels so perfectly placed and framed, and you're supposed to see it and be overawed at its, at its exact geometrical brilliance, right? Um, and I've become I've come to really resent films that are like this. Me too, actually. Um, I'm with you on that. And I felt kind of the same way about Parasite that I did about this, too, in that specific aesthetic way, where everything feels exactly perfectly placed and designed. Um, and which is a perfect contrast to the next film that I watch, which is Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. Um, and I've never seen Mean Streets before. Uh, Me either. I've always, I've always meant to, but I never have. I actually tried to watch it when I was a teenager and turned it off, which is it's funny because I also had that experience with Taxi Driver. Um, mm. But I think Mean Streets is a very well, I mean, it's not a debut feature, but in many ways it feels like a first film, you know, even if it was like his third film. Um, but it, it has in embryo a lot of the dominant themes that Scorsese would develop, sort of the, um, you know, both like the ethnic milieu that he depicts, like this very insular sort of Italian-American New York community, and also sort of the um, um, conflict that arises between um, a person's spiritual beliefs and the demands of the larger, you know, society that they existed I feel like it's a pretty dominant theme in him is, is sort of the, this, the, you know, the, the, what is expected of you of, of society and, and of the, the gender and, and other forms of identity that you belong to versus what, you know, your personal, whatever, moral code or whatever. Um, it's here yeah. in Embryo. Um, and it has some really great performances by, you know, of course, as these old stalwarts, like, uh, Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro. Um, it's interesting comparing. I mean, I, I don't know. Robert De Niro is such a great actor, you know. Mm. Uh, and I don't know. It's interesting comparing this to like Taxi Driver, where he's such an insular character, and this is just like pure energy, essentially. Right. And it, I feel like that's it's such it's he's someone who you know he always he has a similar effect, I think, but he's so good at either. I don't know. He's like he's someone who he can. Um, vary the level of control that he has really well, I think. Which is what makes him an interesting actor, I think. I said I, said, I think like 30 times in a row. Um, but I think the, the, the pseudo-documentary aspects of this really work comp- uh, combined with some um, very, like, um, almost Antonionian um, aesthetic choices where the camera's always sort of kept uh, at a distance from the actors and it, it, it feels, I mean, it's, it's, it feels, the cinematography feels very documentary-esque and I don't mean that in the way of like literally, um, like a lot with the way a lot of people use it as like a sort of synonym for like a realist. It feels like the camera is present in the scene in a way hmm. that is interesting. And there's some, you know, uh, elements of the song that are just documentary, like where there's a repeated sequence that takes place in a, a street fair that, you know, you could just tell that it was just made, but and shot this street fair. Right. Um, but there's a, there's a moment that actually really reminded me of Ox where the camera is like strapped to Harvey Keitel as he like is going to this raucous party. He's going to have drinks poured on and stuff. And it's like the exact same like setup as an Ox, which is so funny <laughs> to me. Um, but I think this film is really, it's a really assured debut. I mean, you know, I, I really love Scorsese. I know that you have some more reservations about his work than I do. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a, wholehearted fan um, i do like some of the films though but uh i feel like this is just a it's just a really excellent um really excellent film. i mean there's like some clumsy stuff about it you know sort of befitting it's 
it's uh, uh, you know so this is like an early film like it states its themes a little too clearly I think and maybe doesn't develop them as much as they could but it's just really interesting to see all the stuff that become you know Scorsese's like signatures like in miniature here I think was it 1973 yes okay uh, and then after that, I watched uh, possibly the uh, low light of my entire life, which is a short film in the Cork Seed first called The Flying Car. Actually, you also watched this. So do you want to set it up? <laughs> no, please set it up yourself. Okay. So um, The Flying Car uh, is a, a short film about uh, two characters played by, um, you know, whatever, Dante and whoever the other guy is, Jeff Anderson uh, from Corks, the, the two titular Corks. Um, and they're stuck in traffic. One of them's Brian Houlihan. Right? That's, the, that's, his, like that. that's his name. Yeah, yeah, like the actor's name. And the other one's actor's name is Jeff Anderson. But I can't remember yeah. his character name. It doesn't matter. This is the two quirks. They're stuck in I a think car. This was, so just for a bit of context, this was made, I believe, before Clerks 2 was actually made. And it was commissioned by some Tonight Show or other. Or something. Um, and it's basically just this um, really boring shot reverse shot as one of them <laughs> asked the other one if they would sacrifice they'd accept being raped by a, a German doctor for a flying car that's it and it sucks I hated it <laughs> it's painful to watch I hate Kevin Smith okay, I, so, hate, I hate you for making you watch this <laughs> so certainly like re-watching a lot of Kevin Smith films, a lot of them. I mean, I hope not, but rewatching whatever Kevin Smith films I have watched, um, you know, closer to my current age, a lot of the dialogue exchanges, like, really do not hold up. Yeah. In a way that they, you know, might have appealed to you as a teenager. And, you know, you know, Hugh, um, that sort of means that none of his filmmaking holds up at all because, uh, I don't know if you know this, but his directorial style is notably <laughs> not existent. <laughs> But um, but like there's the there's the comic dialogue exchanges of which this whole short film is an example, mm. where there's this you know back and forth um, between two characters shot versus shot as you said, and uh, they're having this this playful dialogue right. There's something so affected and um, painful to listen to about the way he writes that dialogue, which is exacerbated by Brian Houlihan's consistently terrible performance as you know the guy from clerks yeah <laughs> the other guy is okay which is why he has the better lines he can kind of get he can deliver them in a way that it sounds like it might come from that person you know it's weird that he's had a smaller filmography than brian O'Loran has well he's he's kind of resistant to everything like they had to convince him to come back for clerks three god that was news apparently there's, there's been some friction I, I, between I, I him and see myself see it watch it and I'm, I'm just gonna just gonna do a quick sound effect of what that's gonna sound like ready for me in the theater <laughs> okay ready yeah okay got it hey, if that wasn't clear it's me putting a gun in my mouth and killing myself i got it i got okay. it so brian houlihan was was bad in clerks but that mm. kind of had a lo-fi aesthetic that it didn't stick out as much yeah as it does you know years later He's like he's so bad in this that it, it makes Kevin Smith's dialogue sound exactly as bad as it is. Because yeah. <laughs> sometimes terrible. acting can, you know, fix it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. If it's good it's enough, and if there's enough rhythm yeah. and momentum, you know, you can you can improve some of that dialogue. But you can fake fake the funk. 
And the problem is, like, he has the most important part of this scene in terms of acting, in a way. Brian Houlihan has to sell the fact that he is go- he's reluctantly going along with this scenario in a slightly unbelievable way that requires good acting in order to sell, which he does not sell. No. And, uh, yeah, boy, does it not work. Now, this is uh, painful. Building to hilarious homophobic punchline. Yeah. Oh, fucking goddamn it. Okay, um, but moving on. I was surprised you actually watched it. I had no intention of like genuinely convincing you to watch that. I was just like sending it to you. I, I to hate annoy myself. You. I hate myself. <laughs> um, moving on, I watched. I rewatched Bad Whams, Terrence Malick's uh, debut mm-hmm. feature. Uh, great film. Uh, and the reason How I- does that hold up in comparison to his later developments? Because it's the first Terrence Malick film I ever saw. And I don't remember being that similar to his more, you know, elliptical films. I mean, I think there are, there's definitely, like, similarities between them, right? And you could really trace the development of his, um, I don't know, like, like, you know, the use of voiceover, the sort of, the the basic sort of um, comparison, the, the, the thematic, like, interest in, like, nature and, and man's, like, philosophical place in it and mm. and violence too which is a pretty important part of this in days of heaven and the thin red wine and i guess the new world too you know um but you know this film definitely doesn't feel as sort of it doesn't feel as like searching as those other films do because it's you know it's a it's a pretty straightforward narrative especially in comparison to like any of his other films really yeah it's it's probably his most linear film right yeah um and it definitely has uh, it's charms. I think I definitely, I think I prefer, I mean, I love this film, but if I had to choose one period of his career to, uh, like watch and not watch the other, I, would, I think I would prefer like his, his films he's made, like, let's say like post tree of life. I think I like those films more just because they're so, they feel so, uh, personal and you might say like, Oh, if you're being critical, like up his own ass, but he just feels so like he's trying to distill the essence of his films down. Right. Mm. Uh, and I find that to be, I find his effort to do that uh, to be, uh, you know, invigorating artistically. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really excited to see a hidden life, but I'm also kind of disappointed he's stepping away from the more experimental ideas of his last couple of features. So we'll see. But I think Badlands is still great. So mm. and has this like great weird score, which I actually was watching one of the bonus features on the Blu-ray disc that I own. That was apparently um, a piece of music that was designed to be played by children. <laughs> and, like, the entire recording is played by children, too. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's really strange. So in terms of the films of your favorite era, post-Tree of Life, mm-hmm. which ones specifically are you talking about? Like, To the Wonder and yeah, what To else? the Wonder, Night of Cups, Song to Song. But you haven't seen Song to Song. No, I haven't, but the other ones. Did you like Night of Cups? I did. I really loved Night of Cups. Okay, I can't remember you talking about it at all. Uh, I think I watched it before the podcast, but I've not seen the Terrence Malick film. I've just like, um, anyway. So let's move on. So I I continued my um, watching of all the Halloween films with Halloween Age twenty twenty years later, uh, which actually surprisingly really really like. <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've heard people who were critical of the reboot saying what the reboot tried to do this film already um this franchise already did with this film. 
I've never, I haven't seen it once, so I don't want to say, but you know, this one was pretty interesting. I don't know. There's something, uh, I think, almost moving about the way it, like, makes the trauma of Halloween so central to, like, Laurie's life, right? And it, it's, I think it's pretty well done. Like, like it, it really shows the the ways that she's tried to move on and the ways that she's failed to, too, you know, and the, the coping mechanisms that she, like, turns to, which is, like, true of a lot of people's trauma, which is to say, like, alcohol and drugs, you know? Yeah, well, uh, this is the exact element that... Um, there are the, some of the reviews I read were talking about that this film explored well and that reboot seems to have retconned out of existence in order to do its own version of Oh, that's right. That's right. It definitely has that, which is really weird because Halloween H20 also reboots the previous, you know, three Halloween films too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is very odd because so does, you know, Halloween 2018. Um, but I'm still excited to see that. Um, but I think this film really does make... The trauma, it, it, it fail, it's it's sort of um, insufferable in a way that a lot of films of its time were, I think. Um, and that, you know, the soundtrack is terrible. <laughs> uh, and it's got some good, but I think I think it, this film is interesting, sort of variation on Michael Myers, too. Because then, I mean, sort of uniquely among the slashes, like, he's not especially brutal killer in other films of his, right? Um, like, you know, he just cuts people's throats or whatever. And this is what he does with, like, really terrible things, which is sort of... I mean, it kind of fits the sort of trap or this sort of, like, violence that's been done to, um, you know, like, Laurie Schroeder's, like, whole wife, right? And it feels like almost like a, a reaction to that, you know, as opposed to, like, a... I don't know. I'm kind of just speaking out of my ass. But I do think... And I, I think it's interesting the way this film, like, you know, makes it sort of generational, the trauma, even if, like, Josh Hartnett is terrible in this, which he is. <laughs> Uh, and it's funny that this film has a couple of, like, stars who would go out to much, like, bigger things. Michelle Williams is also in it. Right. And so is uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the opening scene. <laughs> where he gets a, um, a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, 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 ice skate blade to the face. It's pretty good. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think this film is really, really pretty solid. Yeah, I don't know. There's some like good kills, um, and I think I, I really like the decisive way that it ends. Even if the next film like completely undoes it, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, and there's this like, really bizarre scene that I, I thought was really weird, where L. Cool J is like the black character in this, right? Hmm. And um, he plays like a security guard. And there's a scene where um, uh, Adam Arkin, who's playing uh, Laurie Strode's like love interest in this. Uh, who's like hot as shit? I have to say in this film. I was about to say, did you say Adam Arkin or Alan Arkin? And Ad- Adam Arkin, love interest. So I was like, oh, it can't be Alan Arkin. <laughs> He's like really attractive in a way that I thought was like kind of disconcerting because <laughs> they really are mm. going for like the like sort of like sexy like teacher look, right? Mm. Uh, and there's this like weird part where he's like joking about date rape with his students, which I thought was a little like. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, you could you it's it's believable that uh Jay Lee Curtis would be attracted to this man, is what I'm saying. There's this great okay. scene where he like uh you know, it's it's mid confrontation between them and Michael Myers, and he pulls, he grabs um Laurie's gun to shoot him, right? And it turns out this film I will say one of the things that I, I thought it was annoyed about is that there's a ton of fake out kills, you know? Hmm. And I always thought that was gonna be kind of annoying. Like there's like a bunch of parts where it's like, is that Michael? No, it's just whatever, you know. Um, but this part is really effective where it turns out that he shot L. Cool J to death, right? Hmm. 
<laughs> which is like kind of like you know like oh you mistook the black man for your your villain and you killed him <laughs> like there's like a weird racial subtext to that right Mm. But then it's made like even stranger that like immediately after he shoots Elwood Cool J, Michael Myers comes out and just like stabs him to death. <laughs> it's almost like the filmmakers be like, "Hey, that was a little racist, Bob." <laughs> but then what's even great is that what's even better is that uh, Elwood Cool J like comes back later in the film and he's not dead. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, <laughs> I don't know about this, Michael Myers. But uh, El Kuje has this like bizarre role in this, where he's yeah he plays a security guard. But basically, the majority of his his time is spent talking on the phone with his girlfriend, right? Where he's mm. like reading this erotic novel that he's written, which is it's really <laughs> funny. Um, I, I yeah I really enjoyed this film. I, I would say it's definitely like underrated in terms of like Halloween sequels go. I guess I'm now an expert on that. So I've seen yeah. most of them. Um, and then I watched Halloween Resurrection, which is the um, direct follow-up to this, which is uh, actually picks up like right after this one finishes. And do you mind if I spoil? Do you care? Nope. Okay. So the H20 ends with uh, Laurie basically cutting off Michael Myers' head, right? Yeah. Which Halloween Resurrection immediately recons to Michael Myers like switched his mask with some EMT driver, so she killed some like random EMT driver, right? Hmm. Yeah, which is like, okay. It's like this, it's like this great cathartic moment where she kills him in this movie, you know. Um, but this is like immediately just like oh, and, and she goes back to it and how she gets killed in the first fifteen minutes of this, right? Really? Yeah. <laughs> she basically has like a cameo essentially. Yeah. Um, this movie is like really bad, but it has its, it has it has some charms to it. Uh, I rated it pretty well because it is like pretty wretched. It's like this like you know early two thousand slasher so. Um, it, it's the only movie where you watch it and you feel like Michael Myers. I mean, like even the really shitty Halloween sequels, like you feel like Michael Myers is killing these people for a reason, you know. Hmm. Except for the first one, I guess, where it's like the point is that it's sort of um, ex- existential threat, right? Or he's like this like weird specter of death that doesn't really have. There's like no meaning behind what he's doing, right? Yeah. Um, but in every other one, there's like, oh, he's trying to kill his family or whatever. In this one, he's just killing people for no reason. <laughs> Um, but the setup for this film is completely insane, okay? Because it is about a reality TV series, right? That Buster Rhymes and Tyra Banks are running, okay? <laughs> Where they are basically taking all these like horny college students and locking them in the Myers house, okay? But it's it, and they're all good like cameras that are streamed on the online, okay? So just as like the, staying a night in a haunted mansion and yeah, whatever. pretty much. This is the this is the scene of the evil Michael Myers myth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it has nothing to do with the opening of the film where Laurie gets killed at all, which is like so weird. Um, and then, but all, so all the know, kids know that this is Michael Myers's place and everything. That's the appeal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know what it, what what happens? But Michael Myers inter- interrupts this like web broadcast uh, to kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, some other notable parts the main characters is just some random like woman has like an incel boyfriend who chats with her online and there's a great scene where he, he's like a freshman in college or some shit uh, who uh, um, gets he, his like roommate controls him into going to this party right he like finds this empty room to watch this like web series where this woman is like you know that uh, this woman's being on like the, the horror series which is called Dangertainment which is also great <laughs> 
Um, and he's like watching this, and this this like random like frat guy is making out with this girl, and they like, open this room because I think it's a dude so they can have sex, right? Hmm. And the guy's like, "Hey, what the fuck? What are you doing?" And the guys, the nerds, like, "Oh, I'm watching this entertainment show. Do you guys want to watch?" And the frat guy's like, "No." And the the woman he's making out with is like, "Yeah." <laughs> and there's a kind of funny joke where like whenever they cut back to him watching the show, right? Hmm. Uh, like more people are in the room. <laughs> the more I talk about this movie, the more I like it, actually. <laughs> but because it, it is like really shitty, but there is something like weirdly pleasing about how bad it is, you know. Um, but um, well, now you're so, just stapling your files together. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so but then Michael Myers shows up in the middle of this like web show and murders a bunch of people. Um, that part's like pretty boring. Um, but there's a great scene where Buster Rhymes is, like, fighting. And Buster Rhymes is a character trait of this is that uh, he's, like, a producer of a TV show, series. But there's one scene where he's, like, watching kung fu movies on, like, TV, right? Mm-hmm. And this gives him license to do, like, kung fu moves on Michael Myers at the end. <laughs> <laughs> like, Buster Rhymes is kind of, like, the main character in this movie. This is, like, a Buster Rhymes vehicle. <laughs> he's, like, it's, like, it's actually, like, the best part of the film, to be honest. <laughs> there's a scene where he says, trick or treat, motherfucker, which is great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's not a good film, but it's so not he's like... the final rapper at the end of the film. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's like a sub random woman who survives, but he he lives as well. Um, so I would say it's okay. That's Halloween Resurrection, uh, and then I think finally, yes, finally, I this one took me a couple of days to get through because it was so long, but I watched the Martin Scorsese documentary because I mean. I guess I should mention what I've been watching because I'm going to watch some more Scorsese films and also more Malick films because I just talked about Hidden Life. I mean, I'm also I'm going to go see The Irishman on Saturday. So I feel like I should catch or get through some of the uh, Scorsese blind spots that I have. I probably wanted to watch this film, which is called My Voyage to Italy because I watched, a couple years ago, I watched this documentary series that he did called uh, Personal, um, whatever, I don't know, Personal Journey Through American Movies with Martin Scorsese or whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, this is basically that, but with Italian films. Um, and I do think that my experience of watching it was kind of hampered by the fact that the version that I got did not have subtitles for the Italian films at all. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, but, I mean, you know, he does enough, like, explaining what's happening in this season and stuff that I wasn't, like, completely lost. Well, that's, that's not too bad, actually, because you don't necessarily want to have them completely spoiled. It, gives, yeah, it, it retains something of those films for you to discover yeah. yourself. Yeah. Even though they're already, and, I mean, it doesn't ruin the films, but you know what I mean. I mean, but I mean, yeah, yeah. But the the pleasure of this film is watching Martin Scorsese talk about movies that he loves. And, yes, it is. Uh, I really like just how enthusiastic he is about movies, and he's just such an infectious personality. I think. Mm. I mean, I think it's really moving to see how. I mean, like the best parts of this film are, in, are even when he's talking about the movies themselves per se, but just about his family in in uh, in New York, like who are you know, also like the descendants of Sicilian immigrants and just watching Italian movies on TV and in like the fifties and just like him, him sort of, you know, uh, explaining the personal significance of these films have like makes it really sort of a movie experience. I think, Mm. I mean, I think it's, it's worth watching for that reason, even if it, you know, it's really long. So, (laughs) and hard to find too. It's possibly my favorite thing he's done in a way. I really? I really, really enjoyed it when I watched it, like, as... Uh, my like, Voyage to Italy, or... My Voyage to Italy. Italy. I, I, I yeah. hadn't seen the American cinema one until quite recently. I actually think I like the American one more, just a little bit. 
but I have associations with my voyage to Italy from when I watched it. Um, yeah, at a formative time, I really, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's really good stuff. I mean, not just because like I mean, like it's not like I mean, you know, I I I've taken class on Italian cinema, so like none of the films in here except for like one or two are like stuff that I hadn't heard of before, you know, or like even seen myself. Right. Yeah. But it, there's also be just so pleasure about him just dissecting the parts that he finds admirable about these films, or you know, the parts that he responds to, and just the places that they've played in his life. I think it's really good. This is kind of my favorite style of film criticism in a way. I think we've, we've talked in the past about some of the reservations I have and possibly we both have about certain types of film criticism Yeah. Um, that sort of saps the life out of what it's yeah, yeah. analyzing in order to find, you know, um, theories and critical methodology validated in the text or whatever. Yeah. Which this, this is not at all. That. No. This is just, and this is this is what I really like about this this style of criticism. What I really miss about some of the shows I used to watch growing up, where people on one of our um, partly government owned stations, sort of similar to PBS, mm. would present like cult movies and stuff. I really love that format, and like Alex Cox used to do it in England. Also, Mark Cousins did it as well. I think he took over from Alex Cox, in fact, mm. um, and. That's my, that's my favorite kind of branch of film criticism in a way is pre- actually presenting a film yeah, that, that has connected is, with is you seen as part part of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I so agree. it's something we don't really do on the podcast. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> but yeah, except for when you're mocking me for relating to First Man. I guess that's right. That's right. That's a good bit too. From the classic First Man episode. <laughs> yeah, that great, that great one. <laughs> oh boy. All right, that's all I watched. Wow. God, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about with Dragon Forever. Dragon Forever, I'll be fine. Dragon Forever, anytime. Uh-huh. Start talking without any ambient noises and jingles. Okay, so uh, recently I purchased a video game for my Nintendo Switch that's been, uh, I don't know, I've been devoting a lot of time to it, a decent amount of time to mm-hmm. uh, which is part of the venerable and long-running Dragon Quest series of video games, mm-hmm. uh, which is the most recent release in that series, which is Dragon Quest XI. Uh, the specific Switch title is Dragon Quest XI Definitive Edition S or some shit like that. Uh, which is sort of the up this updated version of the game, which incorporates the because when the game was originally released in Japan in I think two thousand and five. No, Dragon Quest Eleven. Oh, dumb shit. Uh, I think it was released in two thousand and sixteen, maybe. No, um, it, it was released on the PS4 as like a fully 3D 2017 game. is Dragon Quest 11. Yeah. Okay. According to Wikipedia. Um, anyway, so, uh, as I was saying, uh, it was released on, as two different versions. One of the 3DS, which is a like sort of pseudo classic JRPG with like sprite race graphics and like NES style like combat and stuff like that with the same content basically. Oh, really? The, they did a whole different version? Yeah, pretty much. Because of various reasons. I, I don't know. 
because like the PS the the DS install base is way bigger in Japan than the PS4 one. PS4 is anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, they and um, what's interesting about the Switch version is it actually takes you can play either one of the versions, mm. which is not true in the other localized PS4 version that came out. I think mm. last year. Interesting. Um, and there's segments of the game that if you're playing in the 3D version, which I am. You could play the content that was exclusive to the 3DS version. Uh, in it, like it, it incorporates these sequences into the game, where like you, you're playing full 3D and you like talk to the specific character and you go into this other world that becomes the 3DS version of the game, like seamlessly, basically. Right. Um, and unless you like swap back and forth between those, you can actually play the game. You you can switch the mode midway through, essentially, if you want. If you want. Yeah. Which is also interesting. Um, and have you ever played a Dragon Quest game? I know that you're, no. you don't really play that many RPGs. No. They're sort of, they're pretty like traditional JRPGs, you know, turn-based combat. Um, but there's something very charming and, um, I don't know, they feel very, safe is like the wrong word, but they're just, they're just very pleasant experiences. Right. But they're not necessarily the, the you know, um, most innovative or... Cutting edge or so they're not like games. hardcore RPGs. I mean, they're definitely hardcore RPGs. Okay, because they're a like super long, you know. But so but, what? So you say the what the I, the, I'm the, the characteristic that distinguishes it from other square um, it RPGs. Just feels, it just feels era. very homely, you know. Right. And it's not. It's not like they're not like heavy games. In part because they they use a lot of sort of like fantasy cliches, even though there are like parts of this game that are really affecting. But it's more about the sort of charm of the characters and then the sort of... Um, and, and something else that distinguishes them is that a lot of Square RPGs sort of have a big overarching story and maybe you'll have some like subplots and stuff like that. Well, pretty much all the Dragon Quest games I've played are... Maybe they'll have like a really thin overarching story, but it's mostly about these like small, shorter stories that you encounter along the way. Right. That sort of maybe will feed into a larger narrative, like sort of, but it's more like, oh, I'm looking for this thing. I'm gonna go do this whole quest line about this a like, guy, this king who needs help or whatever, and then oh, maybe I'll find the thing or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll find another place to go to it. Mm-hmm. But it's more about the, the the story of this king versus the overarching story. Um, but it's just gotcha. a really charming and fun experience. I think it, it's like it's like you know sometimes I mean I like to play a lot of different games. So as you want to challenge, these games aren't like super challenging, but they are just, they're just very pleasing. They're just very, I don't know, there's always something very therapeutic about playing them. So which, which version do you like to play when you play it on uh, Switch? The, th- the 3D version. Okay. Um, just because it's, it, the, the, apparently the 2D version isn't, it doesn't, it doesn't quite, you know, it's not like, if I, if I wanted to play a game in that style, I wanted to be like super traditional you know yeah i know what you mean yeah or i want it to be like experimental using that stuff but it doesn't seem like it's sort of like a mixture between this two and i don't i don't find that time that project a plus that was project a plus project a plus that was project a plus. project a plus featuring the both of us project a plus now it's time to say thanks very much please stay in touch otherwise we might lose the will to fight then we'll close down our website we're gonna go
another show Now we have to say goodbye Hope you get that dream job Maybe meet a handsome guy We pray to God that you'll find happiness Before you die Oh, friend. Oh.